I'm Inez Stepman. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So uh, we have a great show uh, for you today, I think. Um, Hopefully you'll enjoy it. Our four segments today, first, we're going to start it off with Josh talking about, of course, uh, what else but VP Biden's top secret document stash in Corvettes. Then we're going to turn to Ben, who's going to talk to us about Democrats' anti-racist censorship bill. Um, I'm going to talk about what the George Santos story actually tells us about both parties, as opposed to what the media has been saying. And finally, Emily is going to close us out by talking about David Brooks' State of the Union uh, and and an article that he's written that seems very detached from reality. Um, So with that, let's turn it over to, uh, to Josh for our first segment on the Biden document stash. Okay, so... Uh, we spent numerous episodes of this very show last year talking about the Mar-a-Lago raid and the unprecedented nature of this pre-dawn FBI raid on the private home of of a former president of the United States. And I have to say that if you were a Hollywood screenwriter, I'm just really not sure you could have scripted it any more hypocritically, melodramatically, ironically. I mean, fill in your adverb of choice there, I suppose. But over the past week and a half, maybe up to two weeks by the time this show is released, there have now been, I have actually almost lost count of the number of tranches of classified documents that have been discovered in the uh, Chinese Communist Party funded Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, if I have the name of that particularly irksome money laundering operation correct, as well as Joe Biden's personal residence in Wilmington, Delaware. So the first tranche was discovered apparently on November 2nd, six days before the midterm elections, in the aforementioned Penn Biden Center, quote unquote, think tank, aka money laundering operation, uh, in Washington, D.C. And then if I have the timeline correctly, it was then in December, when once Biden's personal lawyers, a guy named Richard Sauber and others, realized that there were some classified documents just lying around the rummage in the Penn Biden Center, they kind of sent folks into the Wilmington, Delaware, home of President Biden. And then apparently in December, if I have the time right, is when they first discovered that there were also classified documents in Joe Biden's quote unquote locked garage next to his prized Corvette. And, uh, you know, from a news perspective, of course, we have not learned any of this until the past week and a half, two weeks. So there's so much to to unpack here. It's a really quite juicy story. And it's really, frankly, all that I've been able to think about for the past week or so, because there's just so many angles to attack here. I'll probably filibuster for a little less time than normal, because I really want to leave ample time for discussion here, I guess. I have personally at least three big takeaways from what has happened over the past week and a half or so. The first is that as a political matter, this makes it almost impossible for Attorney General Merrick Garland to indict Donald Trump pertaining to the Mar-a-Lago raid last August. Now, it has long been DOJ policy that it is that, that you cannot indict a sitting president. That goes back to an OLC, Office of Legal Counsel memo. I think going back to the late Clinton administration, if, I'm, if, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, maybe the early Bush administration. But the point there is that even if they wanted to indict Trump for the classified document stuff in Mar-a-Lago, they would be constitutionally incapable for reasons of this OLC memo of indicting Biden for the same thing. So, and, you know, the, the American people who, frankly, um, you know, rightfully and properly don't necessarily care to get into the constitutional weeds like that. 
they would look at that and say, wow, why is one person being indicted, not the other? So as a political matter, I think it makes it all but impossible for Attorney General Merrick Garland and the special counsel he is assigned to, to uh, investigate the Mar-a-Lago Trump classified documents to actually indict Trump on those grounds. Now, as an aside, I actually do uh, predict that they will probably indict Trump on frivolous January 6th related grounds, but that's kind of neither here nor there for purposes of this particular segment. My uh, my second takeaway here, which is you know a point uh, that that Alan Dershowitz made an op-ed for us in, in Newsweek last week, and I made it in my own column on this, is that again from a constitutional perspective, these two situations are not the same thing. As we say on this podcast over and over again, the president of the United States, which is what Donald Trump was has plenary authority to make classification decisions for documents whenever he wants to, wherever he wants to, and for any reason he wants to whatsoever. And Article 2, Section 1, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution, the vesting clause of Article 2, solely and exclusively vests the quote-unquote executive power in the President of the United States. The Supreme Court ratified this in a late 1980 Supreme Court decision called Department of Navy versus Egan. This is very straightforward constitutional law. The Vice President simply does not have the constitutional authority to make those decisions. So from a constitutional perspective, these are totally, totally, totally different here. The third question, which Ben also kind of has a, a new piece on, is why? Why the cover-up and specifically why now? And you know, my own take on this, which you know is, is hardly unique to me, is that it seems to me that there are some folks in the deep state, in the deep inside the bowels of the law enforcement apparatus community, especially given kind of the slow, methodical, almost painstakingly slow drip, drip of all these various tranches of documents that that, that had been unveiled here. It seems to me that there are some people who want Joe Biden out. And, you know, as Ben likes to ask, you know, the relevant question here is qui bono, who benefits? And, you know, it seems to me that, you know, Gavin Newsom of California, among other prospective 2024 candidates, are the ones who stand to benefit. So um, I'll stop filibustering because I, I want to give all you guys a, a chance to weigh in here. But this is a very, very big story that's not going away anytime soon. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in here and just add two primary points. One, this is a confirmation. Uh, the fact that this appears to be common. I, I actually suspect that these documents aren't particularly important. Uh, they aren't particularly super sensitive in either one of these cases, right? Maybe that's wrong. Um, but th this does prove that this was um, the, the raid at Mar-a-Lago and everything else that we've talked about in the last you know, several months is very much a show me the man, I'll find you a crime like Beria type situation um, that even Joe Biden, right, after making all of these declarations about how irresponsible it was publicly, um, even he did not have his house in order with regard to these classified documents. Um, and, and I think it points to my second point, which is the vast expansion of what counts as classified. I mean, I am all in favor of keeping certain state secrets classified. Don't get me wrong. I don't think a government, any government, um, can function completely transparently. Um, but it's pretty clear that the broad sweep of this kind of bureaucratic classification scheme, which Josh rightly says is completely overridden and can constitutionally be overridden by the president, um, but this bureaucratic scheme about what things are classified and the handling of classified documents is so broad as to basically make everyone guilty, and that opens the door for political prosecution, which I think is very dangerous. Um, and connected to that point in this coming church-style investigation, which hopefully will investigate the abuse of power from intelligence and law enforcement agencies against American citizens, um, they, they should expect this kind of game about the classified documents. There will be a lot of redactions. I think Ben made this point last week. There will be a lot of unnecessary, probably, redactions. There'll be a lot of, of sort of um, 
dog and pony show about what can and cannot be released, uh, even to um, the, the congressional committee, let alone to the American public. Uh, and so I think it would behoove us to look at maybe standardizing um, some of these practices uh, that, again, can be overridden by the president. But I think it would be worthwhile to look at how much overclassification opens the door for basically anybody um, anybody to be prosecuted. I bet that every modern president has some of these quote unquote classified documents somewhere sitting in, in an office. So um, that opens it again. You know, which side is going to get prosecuted for this? Obviously, our side until they get caught red handed in such a blatant hypocrisy like this one. You know, that's, uh, I think, an instructive point that we actually don't know how damning these documents are. And the spectrum could could range from uh, you know, emails about classified emails about lunch that should never have been classified to documents that uh, were informing Hunter Biden's access peddling, um, knowing that he had access to the garage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so the, the rush to judgment in the Trump case versus in the Biden case, I know there's a lot of talk just from a pure media criticism angle here about how the media is, is suddenly coming down really tough on the Biden administration because they've been pushing this and reporting it out. And it's like, well, okay, so they're doing the bare minimum of their job, the bare minimum of what's being of what's expected. Um, and we may indeed find out that the reason this doesn't get public between November 2nd and uh, the, the last couple of weeks is because media sat on it. We simply don't know that yet. We don't know what they know about the documents. We don't know what anybody knows about the documents and we don't know about the documents um, and our inability to sort of process developing stories in the social media age. Uh, I think Inez's story that she's talking about will probably get at this a little bit too, but that's what, you know, we, there's just a total, people have been talking about this since the days of, you know, cable news, the, the, you know, dawn of CNN and then uh, Fox and uh, so on and so forth. But uh, we have an impossible time with nuance. Like there's just no mainstream uh, narrative anymore that is appropriately nuanced or rightfully nuanced. And uh, a lot of that is ideological and partisan. Um, a lot of it is driven by absolutely in cases like this, the intelligence community um, and by powerful presidential administrations. That's absolutely true. Um, and it's incumbent, sadly, on the average news consumer to sort of figure out how to grapple with that. Um, and that's unfortunate. It shouldn't be the case. But this is just a great example of how completely misinformed the public is and how incapable the, the political class is of um, actually fairly adjudicating important things in our politics. It's just impossible for anybody to do anymore. So uh, I would refer folks to my piece at the Epic Times where I walk through what I think are three of the most viable theories for what's going on here. But I just want to state at the outset, and maybe I'll finish some of this in parting shots, the fact that we are theorizing about all of these various conspiracies and who stands to gain and who doesn't, and the fact that it is very clear now, definitionally, that our national security and law enforcement apparatus is deeply involved in interfering with the 2024 presidential election already, I think speaks to the total third worldization and just the utterly brazen nature of the intervention in our domestic political uh, system that that national security and law enforcement apparatus is engaged in. And we ought to acknowledge that and recognize that up front. And I'll just say, you know, obviously, there's more than fishy kind of chicanery going on here. Just a few things on the timeline. 
We're finding out about these documents six years after they were taken by the then outgoing vice president. His team, these lawyers, for whatever reason, were just happened to be moving documents out of the Penn Biden Center two years into his presidency and just a week out from the presidential election. Coincidentally, right at the time where I'm sure the FBI and DOJ would say, well, we wouldn't have said anything about this because it's too close to an election and we wouldn't want to interfere. On top of that, we're, these were released. We're finding out about these documents. The first business day after Republicans got their house in order by selecting a speaker, a Republican House that is supposed to be probing both Joe Biden and the deep state. Then two days after Republicans set up that new church style committee, which is going to look at the targeting of Republicans and conservatives by the DOJ and FBI. What does the DOJ and FBI do? Announce a probe into Joe Biden with a dueling special counsel for the very same kind of acts that they were looking into Donald Trump. This all just happened to occur like this. I don't think so. I'll talk a little bit more of that when I have some more time in parting shots, but I guess now I'll transition into uh, my own segment, which is about a completely different topic, but not unrelated. And that is a little notice bill that was introduced by Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee on January 9th. So again, right after Republicans got their house in order, titled the Leading Against White Supremacy Act of 2023. And what this act purports to do is expand the scope of hate crimes to include white supremacy inspired hate crime. And what that bill lays out is the conditions necessary for there to be a conspiracy to engage in a white supremacy inspired hate crime. For that, for such a conspiracy to exist underneath this bill, one person needs to plan, develop, prepare, or perpetrate a crime, but another person who may have zero direct relation whatsoever to the per perpetrator or potential perpetrator, according to this bill, is anyone who publishes material, and I'm quoting directly here, advancing white supremacy, white supremacy never being defined in the bill, white supremacist ideology, antagonism based on quote unquote replacement theory, or hate speech that vilifies or is otherwise directed against any non-white person or group, provided that any of this material was published on social media or by other means of publication with the likelihood it would be viewed by persons predisposed to engaging in any action in furtherance of a white supremacy inspired hate crime, or who are susceptible to being encouraged to engage in actions in furtherance of a white supremacy inspired hate crime, or could as determined by a reasonable person, motivate actions by a person predisposed to engage in this kind of hate crime. Or if this content was read, heard, or viewed by a person who engaged in the planning, development, preparation, or perpetration of a white supremacy inspired hate crime. The bill goes on to give the DOJ authority to quote unquote, investigate, intercede, and undertake other actions that it deems necessary and appropriate to interdict, mitigate, or prevent such action from culminating in violent activity. So this is a remarkable bill in no small part because of the lack of definitions, but think about the broader context at play here, You know, beyond the fact that white supremacy is not defined, replacement theory is not defined, which could mean something as simple as saying the Democrats have expressed that they wanna change the demographic makeup of the country through mass immigration because they think that will lead to policies ultimately more favorable, uh, that'll lead to a permanent Democrat majority, et cetera. Leave aside all of that. And also leave aside, by the way, that with the DOJ implication here of essentially more policing of thoughts on social media, because if the DOJ can have authority to investigate and undertake actions to interdict, mitigate, or prevent this kind of violent activity, you can imagine the argument that they can make 
about the need to stifle speech on a whole slew of topics. If you attack critical race theory on social media, are you potentially a co-conspirator in a white supremacist inspired hate crime? Obviously, there's one aspect of this, which is Sheila Jackson Lee is putting forth a bill that continues the perpetual laser focus on America's racism and bigotry and contributing to this hysteria about domestic violent extremism that's rooted in it. Again, there's this use of the national security excuse to chill speech. So hate crime really as proxy for thought crime. And then beyond that, obviously, you can see how this could be exploited in a million different ways. If Tucker talks about quote, unquote, replacement theory on a show, someone goes out and commits acts against any and of a myriad groups of minorities. And then in whatever sick manifesto they put forth, cites Tucker Carlson's work or replacement theory broadly, you can see then how authorities, unhinged authorities, could pursue a criminal conspiracy case against Tucker Carlson or any of a million other people on these grounds. So I think this is illustrative of where the left is. If you ever needed an indicator of what time it is, this is precisely an indicator of it. And I don't think we should just dismiss this and the as the unhinged work work of a Sheila Jackson way, obviously a radically leftist congresswoman and bill that would never pass in a Republican controlled house. But the fact that this is put out there and that there's almost no scrutiny of it whatsoever, this is just accepted as, yeah, this is where Democrats are. When you consider how chilling the implications of this bill are, uh, I think is a real cautionary tale. And it's something that we ought to be talking about. And we ought to have a response to it as well. This is unacceptable in a free society. It should be stated. And that this is the norm now in the Democratic Party, I think, also needs to be stated as well. So with that, I, I put it out to the group. You know, what's your take on this legislation? This bill is insane. And I just have a quick thought. I mean, underscore everything that Ben just said. But Ben, is when you say an, an unhinged person, um, unhinged people, that's absolutely true. They're unhinged. The problem is that we now, as we all agree, in a culture that doesn't consider some of these people unhinged, right? The media will champion them. Thus, there is no, the media will champion them. The political establishment will champion them. Um, thus, there is no, if there's ever a fully unified Democratic Party government, there is no legitimate pushback. And they're just given license to bulldoze uh, American freedoms and American culture and people that they disagree with. And that, that's why I latched on to the word unhinged, because it's, it is accurate. The problem is that we don't have a culture that agrees this kind of stuff is unhinged. So it just gets sort of swallowed, um, and a swallowed whole cloth, and eventually Gradually, um, you know, I, I, I suspect this bill won't go anywhere and maybe, you know, you'll get a, uh, some free speech lawyers tweeting about it. Maybe, maybe. Um, but at the end of the day, if you have full Democratic Party control of Congress and the White House, boy, uh, this is this is the the fine line. Bills like this, um, this this is really a a red line in the sand. Um, and, and it's very easy to see in America that that steps right over it. Yeah, um, I agree with everything Emily said. It's it's not unhinged because it's the logical conclusion of the ideology that's been adopted by virtually every powerful U.S. institution, right? Um, including, as we've been discussing, the intelligence services and law enforcement on the federal level. That's that should be terrifying. Um, it also, I think, puts the focus back on to this expanding web of. Um, of civil rights related legislation uh, that at some point is going to have to be dealt with if we're going to go anywhere with this. 
um, with, with the sort of the project at the right of preserving any kind of, of uh, you know, traditional American way of life, any kind of constitutional freedoms for Americans. Eventually, this web of the CRA is going to have to be dealt with and all of its spinoff bills. This is very much based on the logic. And I, I, by the way, I think that we vastly underestimate, and Gail Harriet has some fantastic work on this, we vastly underestimate how much the civil rights apparatus was changed in the 1990s under George H.W. Bush, to which, to his credit, initially he tried to veto a lot of these changes, but um, was overridden. So uh, not by Congress, but by his own staff, which I guess is its own story. Um, but yeah, eventually we are going to have to find hard stop limits to this expanding web of essentially racialized um, racialized law. Part of that, I think, is going to be uh, enforcing, actually, and very aggressively enforcing the current Civil Rights Act, because it's, it, you know, a lot of these institutions are an open violation of the plain text of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, especially a lot of universities um, are, are in violation. They're discriminating against uh, white and Asian students. Um, this is this is kind of a, a it's not maybe not directly related to this one hate crime bill, but I think it's very much related in terms of the ideology and it's very much related in how law is going to back up this kind of what Emily and Ben have rightly called unhinged ideas about race. So I think we're going to have to deal with that web at some point, which is something Republicans have been terrified to you know, touch because they don't want to say something like, oh, the Civil Rights Act, there are elements of the current civil rights law that go, you know, that go too far and are tyrannical. That's like a difficult political thing for them to say, but they, they are going to need to sack up on it because it increasingly clear that the problems of this country can't be solved without touching the CRA and its attendant tendrils. So our friends at the Claremont Institute are really kind of the tips of the spear of, I think, kind of trying to force the American right to have a very candid, open and frank conversation about race in America and, and the Civil Rights Act and all of that. So much of this just goes back to the Chris Caldwell thesis, obviously, about, about kind of the idea of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, this kind of a second constitution that has in many ways supplanted the original constitution. Um, you know, speaking of Claremont and Claremont adjacent folks, I guess I'll use my time here to flag what was a characteristic barn burner of an essay from my dear friend, and I know a friend of some of yours, David Azrad, which was earlier this week at Chronicles Magazine. So on Martin Luther King Jr., uh, David published a piece uh, entitled, if I have the, the title correctly, From MLK to CRT. And he kind of just goes through some of MLK's books and speeches because, you know, a lot of us, I think, have, um, and, I, and I am actually quite guilty of this, I'll be the first to admit that, you know, we have, met, it, we have kind of used Martin Luther King, I think, as a foil against Ibram X. Kennedy, we appointed to some of his most magisterial words, you know, um, you know, his famous line about kind of judging everyone by, uh, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and his famous I have a dream speech. And I think for many conservatives, that has been a very, very useful foil against kind of the CRT anti-racism Ibram X. Kennedy crap. But if you if, if you peel under the hood a little bit um, and you actually kind of look at some of what MLK put into writing and what he said to various audiences over the course of his speaking career in the 1960s, what, what David Azarad shows is that MLK himself actually, you know, supported, uh, you know, what he called special treatment, what we would now call affirmative action. He supported some form of reparations, actually. Um, you know, that's kind of become like a sine qua non of kind of the modern kind of woke CRT stuff. So MLK was actually very much there. And it was really just an eye-opening piece to me. And, you know, I, I messaged David and I was like, thank you for kind of opening my eyes to this. So, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly what point I'm, I, I'm, I'm leading up to here, but 
all of this is deeply uncomfortable stuff. There's no one who really kind of wants to talk about race. It's just a profoundly kind of difficult subject, obviously, especially in the aftermath of kind of the George Floyd riots and the broader kind of great awakening that has happened with Black Lives Matter and all that since then there. But, you know, uh, with legislation like this that Ben is properly flagging for our, our audience here, it appears to me that we are now past time to kind of, you know, muster the courage and try to do this in earnest. So, you know, on, on, uh, on that note, uh, Inez, let's toss it back to you to tell us what's going on with George Santos, I guess. Yeah, sorry. I didn't realize that all four of us had gone on that last segment. Um, yeah, so I, I want to talk about this George Santos story, uh, because initially I very much thought of this as a partisan hack piece um, coming out from you know MSNBC, CNN. Look at how crazy these Republicans are, even though I agree that obviously this guy is a serial fabulist, right? But my initial impression of it was, What's the big deal? You know, Jim Traffickant was in Congress for many years. It's hardly, um, it's hardly sort of a deviation from American history to have a couple serial fabulists in Congress. Um, and and also, if you're going to police lying by politicians any other way than the voters, uh, it gets very scary very fast. Um, but actually, the more I dug into the story, the more I thought about what this actually reflects about the two parties, I think is actually quite important. Um, and that's how this guy got through with a lot of these really, really easy to check huge lies, right? Um, he was obviously lying about where he had worked. He was lying about his financial status. He's potentially engaging in some campaign pilot, uh, finance violations, as well as like uh, working with a Ponzi scheme um, to try to funnel money into his campaign that those are all alleged accounts. We'll see, there's probably some kind of investigation that's gonna come out um, from federal law enforcement on that. Uh, but they're, unlike in some of these other federal law enforcement cases, there seems to be a lot of fire under the smoke. Um, and then he was engaging in this kind of just really basic lying about being on a volleyball team what what you know universities he'd graduated uh, from which which companies he had worked for like really easily checkable stuff uh, in in the area era of 24/7 media right and the question is then how did this guy get through not one but two different opposition research um, sort of background files one obviously from the Democratic Party and then one internally from the Republican Party and and the answer is kind of he didn't but both sides had their own uh, reasons why they basically ignored some of these very obvious red flags on his resume um, and and for the I'll do the Democratic Party first because I think it's simpler and more and, and sort of um, just confirms a lot of what uh, we've we've talked about here for for many many months um, but the Democratic Party did flag, for example, that this guy had multiple evictions while he was saying that he was, you know, a, a, essentially a real estate tycoon and was making millions and millions of dollars. Um, so that should have been a focal point for them to dig further into his past. Uh, it was political malpractice. They really didn't. Why did they not do that? Well, because they decided that the better message to run against this guy would be Trump and January 6th, because they're so hysterical about those two topics that they thought that the average voter would be just as hysterical about that, as opposed to this very meat and potatoes kind of basic opposition research, hey, this guy is lying about a bunch of evictions and probably his job. Um, so they kind of ignored that and they went for for the, the hysteria issues, right? Um, that I think is is just indicative of, of political malpractice and how far the Democratic Party has really come in terms of being ideological as opposed to a basic uh, sort of political entity, like doing the jobs that a political party you would think uh, would be able to do. The more interesting side of this is the Republican side. So these issues with um, this candidate, right, George Santos, 
were flagged internally in the Republican Party. They didn't they didn't find everything, but they found some of it. Right. And they found enough. Uh, again, to justify red flags and actually his entire campaign staff at one point after doing this opposition research on him um, as, as part of a standard political campaign practice, encouraged him to resign and they themselves quit. So this stuff was not completely unknown. Um, and then it seems that Elise Stefanik and a lot of people associated with her team wanted to keep him in the race, wanted to keep him in the primaries and basically wanted him to be the Republican representative, despite all these red flags. Why? Because to, to her, he was a rising star purely because he checked a lot of these, these boxes that the Republican Party is somehow even more thirsty um, than the left about these identity politics boxes, right? He was going to be the first openly gay elected Republican. Um, he was, he is depending on who he was talking to, he was Latino or Jewish Catholic, right? Um, he checked all of these sort of identity politics boxes that on the one hand, Republicans are, are paying lip service to being a against, but in choosing their own candidates, they're very, very thirsty to get. And nothing is a better example than this than the temporary like sort of love for uh, Caitlyn Jenner, right? Bruce Jenner on the right, um, potentially, oh, this should be our candidate for governor for California or whatever. Um, there is this real problem with the Republican Party elevating candidates just because they fit the, the identity politics checkboxes of the left. And this is just fundamentally weak. Um, I think it's it's a species that the Dems are the real racist argument that I also think is fundamentally defensive and weak and we need to move away from. But I do think that this little story is, is not so much important because of one crazy congressman who's clearly um, a pathological liar getting in. I don't think that shows much about the US House as an institution um, or about the Republican Party, to be honest. I think these things have always happened. Um, but I do think the way that the vetting of this guy fell through the cracks in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party for different reasons is very indicative about where the two parties are. So with that, I'll kick it out to the rest of you. I think the other interesting part of the story, there's there's one thing here, there's a local news angle that in a, a healthy functioning system, uh, you wouldn't just have to rely on reporters in Manhattan. By the way, they weren't that far away. Uh, the national news wasn't that far away, but they also managed to miss the AOC story, if you remember back when she actually beat Joe Crowley for the first time. Um, and DC, you know, political reporters are so nationalized that so much of the stuff gets missed. And that's, you know, partially why parties don't have an incentive to do really thorough oppo stuff and to take their oppo stuff really seriously or to take it really, really differently because uh, a lot of that stuff gets glossed over in the nationalization of local elections. Um, so I, I also think that's a big part of the problem. You know, two things can be true. The story, I saw it like on CNN again this morning, they interviewed, I'm not making this up, George Santos college roommate. Um, just like they sat, the, the kid, like they, they interviewed like elementary school classmates of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh and whomever else. Um, so I think two things can be true. One is that the media has latched onto the story disproportionately uh, and specifically because they want to punch a Republican. And secondly, that this is a real problem for the Republican Party for all of the reasons that Inez said. So I think both of those things are true. Um, but I also think it speaks to what we talked about earlier in the show that we are starting to have problems functioning in the most basic ways as a as a society um, in the United States. And, and part of that is because the way the media has completely skewed and distorted the conversation, it just makes it impossible for people to function. So uh, I do think the story is a problem. You know, I think there was a time 
where I would have like really, really, really cared about this. I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago, probably like six, seven years ago. I can easily see myself as kind of like an earlier stage of like my like blogging and writing being like, you know, take a stand on principle. Like this guy's a pathological liar, toss him out. You know, I have to be honest with you. Um, you know, after the past like six, seven years, this is kind of, I think, part and parcel of so-called and knowing what time it is. In the aftermath of the Trump Russia four years of the of the, of the Russia collusion delusion after the Brett Kavanaugh you know throwing out five thousand years of innocent until proven guilty after the twenty twenty election and all the nonsense that, that entailed, I really just have a hard time making myself care. Um, that's just a very very honest um, assessment. You know, we published a an op ed from the Dallas based uh, conservative radio host Mark Davis. Uh, Today in news, we kind of making uh, or uh, on the day that we're, that we're recording this podcast, um, making a somewhat similar point, and you know that's not to to sound so uh, you know apathetic or like morally detached or whatever here, but you know I basically think and I I have concluded after just kind of observing what has happened in American politics over the past five six years or so that you know like the proverbial like I will start caring about George Santos when people start caring about the fact that Ilan Omar what she married her husband to like escape immigration fraud or something like that right I mean Ben you, you had a whole book on Ilan Omar so I defer to you on the details of that sordid affair but uh, married her brother whatever the details are but like I I, I you know I, I guess I just don't care and you know like this guy is a clearly a nut job and frankly I expect that he will be indicted I mean he's probably going to face this ultimately probably ends up with George Santos in prison that is probably how this ends up he will probably be indicted and if I had to guess in a jail cell before the House of Representatives votes to formally remove him and you know um I'm not sure that's necessarily the worst outcome at this point either given how really just insane. I mean, hold aside just the personal biography stuff, like the Holocaust, all that. Hold all that aside. I mean, like he's now being like accused of, of orchestrating various Ponzi schemes, Bernie Madoff Jr.-esque fashion. This is this is really nasty stuff. He will get his just comeuppance. I'm just not sure my personal outrage necessarily has to help uh, immunitize the eschaton on that. Yeah, Josh uh, stole my thunder a little bit. So just if you think the George Santos story is wild, uh, I do humbly recommend my book, American Ingrate on Ilhan Omar. Uh, and I will say that's someone, by the way, who sat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee who could never get a security clearance to do anything in America, uh, yet has been in a powerful position in Washington, D.C., despite being beyond a fabulous in terms of her background and likely committed a whole slew of crimes, all of which I outline in my book, and also, which is worth noting, in her case, uh, the Minneapolis area media were completely disinterested in investigating, uh, I think for obvious political reasons. Uh, one observation, you know, I suspect Inez was maybe alluding in parts of this New York Times article where they talk about, you know, how did both sides miss this? And they say basically, well, Republicans were being willfully blind intentionally because they're so political and cutthroat. And, you know, Democrats, they just failed. They really tried hard, but they couldn't quite get there. Hilarious line, which is just such a media inside baseball sort of argument. The Times writes, Democrats labored unsuccessfully to convince the news media, which had been weakened by years of staff cuts and consumed by higher profile races, to dig into the troubling leads they did unearth. Yeah, that's why they missed it. I'm sure it's because of media cuts. I mean, it's hilarious that the New York Times puts that out there. The only other point uh, I think is worth making beyond the idea that it just defies belief that Democrats especially knowing that this could be a, the kind of seat that maybe a majority would hinge on, wouldn't get to the facts on Santos, which is kind of remarkable unless they really dismissed him as a serious threat for this seat. 
which wouldn't be the first time. I mean, Hillary Clinton did it with Donald Trump. But the other thing is, to Josh's point, I think there's been somewhat of a sobering up among uh, Republicans and conservatives more broadly in terms of what goes in our political system. Uh, sadly, I think by by all, I mean, we'd all love our, our politicians, our representatives to be honest, forthright, full of character and beyond. But it's interesting to note the real politic that I think you see in the Republican establishment, which is they're not calling for him to step down, resign from office in disgrace, et cetera. You've had the establishment essentially stand behind them and say politicians are liars, effectively. Uh, I'm kind of surprised, actually, that the Republican establishment has taken that position. Maybe to Josh's point, they're expecting the law to ultimately handle this. But, you know, I think Democrats would never call for resignation in this particular instance, with the exception of Al Franken. And that was on Me Too grounds, at least putatively. And that was like a political lifetime ago, essentially, in what goes in our political process. So I think it is interesting to note that uh, even the GOP here is not taking the line you would expect of he must go. This is horrible. Purge this human uh, from the earth um, again, for better or worse. Uh, but maybe the law will take care of it and provide the justice that is richly deserved in the case of George Santos. Yeah, I think it's it's partially because, of course, <laughs> he was very much uh, uh, pumped up by the establishment for reasons of the GOP being too essentially uh, bow too much um, interested in bowing to the media narrative on race, sex, class, and gender, and all the things they like to talk about. But with that, um, I'd like to kick it over to Emily. She's going to talk about an America that none of us truly see, and apparently we're all wrong. America is doing uh, is doing just great, isn't that right, Emily? Yes, that's right. Uh, everything is great in David Brooks's neighborhood. Everything's good in his hood. Um, he wrote a piece in the Atlantic, a, a long essay sort of trying to grapple with the mismatch between these statistics that he's fixated on uh, that show economic growth in America and the mood that he's picked up on of the country. And it's it's amusing, but it's also really sad. And I think is fits with the theme of this entire conversation about why we have uh, these, these ridiculous double standards, why we have such a hard time with governance, why conservatives now have their eye more fixed on the ball instead of constantly chasing uh, the media narrative du jour. And, and one of the reasons is because we're clearly in a cultural emergency, uh, no, a national emergency. It's a, we're, we are in a state of decline. And David Brooks and uh, his, the, the sort of David Brooks's of the media and the political class, people in bubbles of privilege, and I mean that in a, a very real sense, um, people who are, are wealthy, disconnected from uh, the, the middle class and the lower income brackets, um, they ha increasingly have no idea. They, they can look at these statistics and say, but, but hey, uh, you know, listen, like Michael Strain writes, you know, the, the American dream is, is not dead. You can still do X, Y, and Z. And the entire Brooks column in the Atlantic, he, he sort of admits he's bludgeoning people with these statistics because he thinks they're so relevant and underappreciated about economic growth. He's like, we've actually netted manufacturing jobs post-COVID. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're doing great by all of these different economic metrics. And some of those metrics are absolutely correct. Uh, he says America leads the world in, in innovation still. I mean, all of this stuff is completely true. Um, but he asks, you know, basically, or, or suggests the pessimism that shows up in statistics about, for instance, happiness are for no good reason. Uh, and it's really telling that instead of turning that question around and asking, for instance, 
why is it, as Arthur Brooks has asked, asked in the same publication, The Atlantic, Arthur Brooks has asked, what, what is with this paradox of material comfort rising and happiness declining? Instead of considering loneliness statistics, birth rate statistics, marriage rate statistics, uh, happiness, like taking a more serious look like Brooks has done at, at happiness statistics, instead of doing any of that, David Brooks just says, there is no need for pessimism. And of course, these are two different arguments at the same time. He's arguing uh, on the one hand that life is getting better. And then he's arguing on the other hand that this broad sense of pessimism is irrational. Those are two different things, right? Like we can be in decline and we can still have reason for optimism because as he explains, uh, the United States of America, at least for now, does still have these tools at our disposal to be a free and functioning uh, constitutional republic. So I, I really want to kick this open to the group. What did you make of the column? Um, and what do you make of, of the disconnect? It's true that the Arthur Brooks is of the world. I mean, he's kind of been a, a voice in the wilderness. There aren't a lot of people coalescing around him and asking, you know, why these material comforts are not sufficing, why, you know, they are not tied, clearly tethered to the rise in material comforts, why that's not also uh, going along with happiness. I don't disagree that material comforts in, in many ways are rising. I still think it's, it's he, I think uh, Brooks and Michael Strain, et cetera, downplay uh, differences in upward mobility over the course of time. You know, when you're comparing it to your parents' generation, it might make you more miserable, even if upward mobility is still okay. Um, so I think there, there's some downplaying going on there, but it, the, the fact of the matter is happiness is declining, overdoses are up, uh, teen suicide, it, you, they're all of these different metrics. And if you're not asking the question the other way around, uh, you're, you're totally missing the big picture. So let me toss it open to the group on that note. Yeah, I think um, just briefly, this is this is what happens um, when people are looking at the wrong metrics, right? And I think that that's really uh, the crux of, of the matter and why if you look at some of these, like, for example, we can look at GDP, or we could look at the ability of the average American worker to form and fund his family. Like, those are two very different metrics. And um, one, we might be performing well, but it says nothing, increasingly says less and less about the other. That itself is a problem, right? Or how many tchotchkes we can buy at Walmart versus a 90% decline in people reporting that they have more than one or two friends, right? The, those are metrics that really matter. And I think this is something Emily talks about so well and so often, which is our politics isn't actually getting at some of the most important problems in American life. Uh, in, in, it led in 2016 to a political earthquake that no one could predict, right, among the New York Times staff or, or David Brooks, right? Um, but it, it's they're still stuck in, in this loop of pretending that the same issues and the same metrics from 1990 are actually capturing the situation in which people are basically screaming back, no, they're not. They're not capturing. I, I am experiencing a marked decline and you know, in terms of, of everything that is actually important to having a good life and the American dream. And you cannot just tell me that, oh, like the GDP statistics are fine and that'll cover what I see with my own eyes. And it just shows goes to show that the same folks, both on this type of right and on, on especially the neoliberal left, like the New York Times itself, they refuse 
to uh, actually look at any of those problems. And instead, they, they search for a variety of, of uh, easy explanations that let them off the hook and let American institutions off the hook for this kind of declining quality of life in America, um, like everyone's a racist or, um, you know, people are just making up their pessimistic, you know, view of the country. So I think it just it just shows uh, exactly how stuck uh, a certain part of a certain powerful part of American leadership is in 1990. There's something deeply and profoundly off-putting, and therefore upsetting about someone in David Brooks's position who has led the entire life that David Brooks has led, and, and I'm not even talking about here about his extramarital affair, his extramarital affair, his abandonment to the faith of his fathers, all of his various other acts of moral turpitude for which he is a moral degenerate. I'm actually not even talking about that. But there was something just profoundly off-putting about this man who has worked in the institutions that he has worked in, just sitting there and saying, like, don't worry, everything is fine. Well, you know what? It's actually really not fine. And, you know, there was another good piece that I'll flag for my friend Seth Leibson, who's a Phoenix, Arizona-based radio host. One issue that Seth has been passionate about for decades, and I have become increasingly passionate about myself over the past five and a half years since my own cousin overdosed and died in Massachusetts, is America's drug epidemic. And in this piece of the Washington Times, what Seth Leibson shows is that, you know, everyone missed this. This the, this data just totally slipped under the radar, but the U.S. government just over the past week or two showed that 14.3% of Americans right now, based on the surveys that we have, uh, are apparently using illegal or dangerous drugs. That is a new all-time high or a new all-time low. The previous all-time high was in 1979 when the number was 14.1%. As Seth explains, that number and the people and the fact that everyone across the political spectrum recognized that this was a crisis was what led to Nancy Reagan's "Just Say No" campaign and this kind of like decades-long campaign to reduce drug use, ultimately culminating in a low in 1992 of 5,000 annual drug-related overdoses, which is still way too high, but is paltry in comparison to the number right now over the past year, it was 106,000. We went from 5,000 drug overdoses in a year in 1992, three years after I was born dating myself here, to 106,000 over the past year. That is not the sign of a healthy society, you know, exponentially skyrocketing suicide rates for, for teens. This, there is a lot that is currently wrong with mental health, despondency, loneliness, you know, mass addiction to Instagram and, and social media's toxic, deeply toxic effects. Shout out to, you know, Rachel Bovard, who would sound these, you know, uh, these themes so eloquently on this particular show. So I, I was just angry, frankly, you know, reading this op-ed, Emily. It, it is coming from a man who was just so grotesquely out of touch with the country that he purports to cover. And it really just left me with a deeply sour note in my mouth. Yeah, and to to Emily and Josh's points, you know, obviously, how could you, how, for all the talk about opportunity, which is sort of the underlying argument in Brooks's ar article, to the extent there is an argument, how can you make that that case when you have prime working age males increasingly dropping out of the workforce and never coming back into it? If if opportunities are so aplenty, why is it that so many people are opting out of those? purportedly great opportunities. I, I even think that the economic arguments in the article are overstated about how rich and plentiful things are and, and there's abundance and you know we're having such amazing breakneck techno technological progress, et cetera. Even, even those arguments I think are actually weak. But I think setting it aside, 
this reveals something about the mindset of the likes of the Brooks, which is that they have a materialist worldview where they think that ultimately it's prosperity that trumps all else. I mean, I think that is at the end of the day, what's implied. Look, obviously when you have opportunity for work, we find meaning in work that gives us great purpose and pride and sense of self and value to our families and the like. And so there are of course, spiritual benefits to engaging in the material, but it's obvious that you can have material plenty and be completely empty on the inside. And without idealism, by the way, ultimately the materialism dies. And none of that is grappled with really by Brooks, nor is the fact that, look, every single empire that declines has material plenty at the time that it's decadent and declining. Always and everywhere, the civilizations that rise up to the greatest heights end up reneging on and rejecting ultimately the very values and principles that enabled, in this case, the material plenty. And the material plenty was never the ultimate goal of having liberty and justice in this country in the first place. So, of course, you know, this, the civilizations that decline reject what made them great. And that's obviously what we see in a whole number of anecdotal and then empirical metrics as well. So I think you know, this reveals kind of the myopia and the materialism among our elites. Uh, it's beyond ivory tower in, in this case. Um, and it ultimately has disastrous consequences when you have a class of quote unquote intellectuals that put forth arguments like this and completely neglect all of the countervailing wins and just basic history and human nature. Yeah, with that, um, I'd like to, to throw it out to the room for final thoughts. I can go. Um, the the <laughs> there, There's just a lot that we talked about, but I think it all uh, sort of came, from my perspective, it, it's sort of falling under a similar umbrella. And uh, there's something that confounds a lot of people who look at happiness numbers is uh, the fact that in America, the recently at least, uh, there isn't a tie that's as neat between material well-being and reported happiness, self-reported happiness in, in other countries and in America in the past, it's been easier to see them rise together. Um, and I think one place that is increasingly in need of research is, is actually indigenous communities that are really insulated um, and where people are still living roughly as they would have lived a very, very, very long time ago pre, in pre-industrial periods. Um, because what you can see there is that while yes, we might be able to measure uh, happiness and well-being together. We might be able to see the connection between those two rising really clearly in an industrial world um, because, for instance, our expectations shift uh, in those societies. Uh, you know, having some basic needs met, you know, one thing they find when they try to measure happiness in indigenous communities is that health is really paramount. And you can sort of talk about Maslow and how that might make sense um, in, in that type of situation. Uh, but it, it also can help us thinking about the world that we live in. And, uh, you know, as, as healthcare has become exceedingly expensive in the United States uh, and a huge source of stress for a lot of people um, it, to, and as I think said this in a chat, I, I think she said this in a chat the other day, you know, you can have all of these great talents that David Brooks is thinking about and no way to get them together in a bowling league, let alone, uh, you know, working on semiconductor chips. Uh, so it's, it's obvious that one thing they should be talking about dot at dot 
Davos right now, which is where they're meeting, but they're not, is why that might be the case, why they can increase GDP, why they can give you the bugs, they can give you the pod, they can give you it all, um, and you're going to be miserable to the point of uh, persistent sort of populist uprisings, populist revolts, whatever it is, um, it's not going to work as neatly as they want it to. And they won't talk about that because it's completely off their radar because they read David Brooks and that's what makes sense to them. They think, <laughs> yes, uh, this is exactly right. Uh, why aren't they grateful? Why aren't they happy? Uh, we must uh, keep prescribing uh, more and more antidepressants, et cetera, et cetera, and these ridiculous technocratic solutions. So uh, that, that's my final thought. <laughs> yeah, um, jumping off of that, uh, it would also require something from them right? Um, it would require something from elites, a change in their behavior, potentially a change in the structure of their power. Um, look, this is this is going to be, um, I think it was Ben who mentioned that, or no, maybe it was you, Josh, who mentioned that the last high in terms of drug use uh, was 1979. Um, and, and sometimes people point to that, especially folks like uh, the David Brookses of the world, point to that um, and say, well, look, we survived the 70s, right? And we, we moved into the 80s. Um, but I think this time, first of all, don't underestimate the, the complete devastation of the 1970s um, in, in terms of, of lives, in terms of ability of ordinary law-abiding citizens, to, for example, to walk down the street in any of America's urban cores, right? Uh, don't underestimate how bad the 1970s got. Um, I think we will see a lot of the same uh, the same consequences, right? We will see uh, crime, insanity, um, people, you know, completely separated from their families living on the streets, uh, but everything will be worse because the building blocks, the underlying building blocks, religion, family, community, patriotism, on every one of those metrics, we are more atomized, more um, separated, less patriotic, less able to rely on the things that human beings have naturally relied on for millennia uh, to, to have purpose and meaning in our lives. So this will be worse than the 1970s. And Golden Gate Park right now is no you know, summer of love of a bunch of sort of wayward hippies, uh, children of, of mostly wealthy families who are just you know smoking dope and dropping acid, right? Um, and, and playing some pretty good music along the way. Um, so we will see instead, and in, in Golden Gate Park, we are seeing, right, uh, fentanyl overdose, um, incredible crime, uh, crime wave coming up. And by the way, speaking of the other consequences of the 1970s that are back, um, you know, crime is obviously where at the beginning where hopefully uh, we'll see what cities do. But if they don't, if they continue on their current path, we are at the beginning of an, a new massive crime wave, which may hit the heights of the 1970s and even surpass it. Um, so yeah, and DC, by the way, just to throw in one additional piece of, of info on this, um, DC today, the city council is voting whether or not to override Mayor Bowser's veto uh, of, of a crime bill, a crime uh, adjustment to the crime law that they have passed that would uh, reduce the sentence on everything uh, except murder one. So that's carjackings, right? Assault, um, every kind of, of violent crime you can think of, the penalties are going to be reduced if they do indeed, as expected, override even Mayor Bowser's veto. So I think we can expect all the consequences of the 70s uh, or worse. So allow me to issue a quick note of correction, because as loathsome as David Brooks is, I don't want to actually um, you know, misstate the facts here. So uh, what I do know 
is that he left his wife in order to marry his research assistant of a different religion. I am not entirely certain that there was an affair somewhere in there that might have been kind of a sequential ordering. So I, I, I you know, if you're listening, David Brooks, um, if by small chance you're listening, I do not know for certain that you, that you had an affair, but I do know um, as the aforementioned David Azrad reminded me via email a few months ago, uh, you, David Brooks, did write a book called The Road to Character. So I guess you have that going for you. Um, on a slightly less tongue-in-cheek and slightly more serious note there, I just want to underscore kind of this theme that we've been touching on over the, really over the past 10, 15 minutes of the show, which is just the utterly misbegotten notion that we should be judging societies based on, you know, such kind of abstruse statistics as kind of a gross consumption, uh, you know, GDP. You know, our friend Orrin Cass has been, I think, one of like the loudest voices on, on the right over the past five, five to 10 years, basically saying that, no, this is not a metric of how you actually measure a healthy society. And there's really just one example that I always use to kind of just directly shine a spotlight on the on the moral fallacy of thinking of GDP and consumption as kind of being kind of the end all be all of what it means to be like a healthy and productive and and just and great society. And that example is the pornography industry. So, you know, in theory, if America were to become kind of a single sector economy based around the San Fernando Valley in Southern California, and we were, and, you know, America already is the largest producer and consumer of pornography. But if for some, if if we were to make that, like, if we were to put all of our resources in, in into that, you know, the economy, you know, in theory, the GDP and the consumption based on downloads and, and people watching illicit content and all that, you know, in theory, consumption and GDP could be quite high. But, you know, it doesn't take a PhD in, in, in political theory or moral psychology or whatever to arrive at the obvious conclusion that that would not be a thriving society in any way, period, whatsoever there. So that's kind of just the one example that I like to kind of use just to kind of drive home the point that thinking of a society, uh, let alone, you know, an economy, let alone an entire society in terms of just consumption and GDP is just total nonsense there. On the drug overdose point in particular, I'll just quickly underscore the fact, and Seth does this in his Washington Times op-ed we've already flagged as well, I'll just quickly underscore the fact that the total crisis at the southern border just makes the, the entire drug epidemic that much worse. And, you know, if you purport to care a, a, about this crisis, then you have to care about stopping the flow of the cartels and the smugglers and all the drugs flowing in over that porous, wide-open border. And, you know, I can't help but wonder that if all the progressives now who have this outrageous messaging when it comes to drugs, as Seth also shows in the op-ed, this messaging, I mean, I remember a tweet from the Lollapalooza Music Festival in the city of Chicago last year, Chicago Police Department, I, I kid you not, CPD, Chicago Police Department, which, which is a totally feckless police department, by the way, but they, they put out this tweet that said, you know, if you're using drugs, if you're using Molly, MDMA, Lollapalooza, just use it safely. I mean, like, what kind of messaging is that? What is that? But, you know, part of me thinks that if you're, you know, if your intersectionality forces you to believe in open borders for kind of multicultural rainbow coalition reasons, then maybe you have to apologize on the back end for the drugs that are smuggling in. So all these issues kind of relate to one another in kind of a weird way. And, um, you know, unfortunately, it's a, it's a pretty negative note to end on, but um, it is what it is for this week, I guess. Well, of course, just to add on to that, we also have these purportedly safe drug use spaces where in some instances 
our tax dollars are actually paying for the drugs being consumed in addition to the spaces where individuals are quote unquote safely using them. Any society that normalizes killing yourself, I think it tells you a lot about the health of that society. Um, yeah, this is kind of a depressing way to end this episode. We've had kind of high-minded, but uh, generally pessimistic and depressing points here. And I just kept going back to, you know, we're talking as you know, the WEF is meeting and I'm just thinking about, you know, I'd really take bread and circuses over bugs and Prozac, but, but here we are today. Um, so I'll go to a narrower point, return back to the Biden papers, which is sort of a bread and circuses thing, but also quite serious, just to make, you know, a couple points. You know, I think Josh is right that this creates uh, kind of a challenge, but also I think an opportunity for the DOJ and FBI. In my piece where I walk through in probably too much detail, kind of all the different angles that I think are associated with what's going on with these papers coming to the surface. I think one aspect of it is, despite the fact that, as Josh noted, you know, an outgoing vice president does not have declassification authority, the former president did have declassification authority when he took those documents or staffers took those documents. There is a real legal difference here. Um, I think what the DOJ may well do is say, we're going to punt on these charges for both men, which in a way covers up the pretextual use of those documents to try and go after Trump. But then to Josh's point, try to get him on obstruction of justice, which in the special counsel order for Trump, they raise the prospect of obstruction, not to mention January 6th and beyond. So I think this allows them to sort of save face, so to speak, uh, but also to use the frivolous attempt to get at Trump and have that Mar-a-Lago raid to cover themselves by dismissing those charges for both of these men, potentially. But it also provides a ton of optionality, optionality for the DOJ and FBI and our deep staters and the Democrat Party. Uh, beyond that as well, um, I think there's another point worth making, which is the obvious, that at the very same time that, again, House Republicans are about to probe Biden, as well as the deep state, that the deep state says, well, we're going to probe Biden and take off the play at the idea that we're targeting conservatives, which everyone knows is a ruse, not successful to make that argument, but they may well put that out there. But I think it's also about the DOJ and FBI being able to now place both of these investigations under lock and key, which I do think is significant. The last point I'll make, which isn't really being talked about, is you know, Gavin Newsom was raised. I, I do wonder, you know, obviously Kamala Harris is the one who stands to gain above anyone else potentially to the extent either this is a bid to get Joe to walk away before 2024, or obviously, you know, if it's just about him not running in 2024, maybe not as big a gain for Kamala. But I guess the question would be, you know, why, what, it, what do they do if Kamala is the one who's raised in these next two years? Is that the look the Democrat Party is going to want to have going into 2024? Um, there's also a lot of other intrigue around even just who Joe Biden's lawyers were, because they're intricately, integrated, integrally tied to the Obama Biden administration. I saw some pictures surfacing online. I think a tweet, Susan Rice thanking one of these individuals for her service. Susan Rice, of course, runs domestic policy for Joe Biden. So there's all this intrigue also around Obama knifing Biden and the Obamaites knifing Biden now that he's no longer useful. All these threads, I think, are worth examining and thinking through, but it also points again to the third worldization that I think we're seeing in our country, yet another measure of how unhealthy we actually are. So take that, David Brooks. On that typically depressing round of final thoughts, um, on behalf of Ben, Emily, Josh, and me, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman, and I'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.